track with me. We're going to read a little bit about the plot to kill Jesus and then into this Passover scripture. So it says in chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now skip down to verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you prepare for us to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and they were eating. He said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who dips his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Spirit is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, answered him, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said to them, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord, we ask for your leading, prompting, and directing as we go through this text this morning. That you would impact our hearts, form us, and transform us. This morning we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Anybody in here ever wanted a do-over? Yeah, I was playing Contra yesterday with my son downstairs. You guys remember Contra? Anybody? Uh, the, the password, the cheat code, doesn't work on that Nintendo for some reason. And so we wanted a do-over time and time again. Now, when I think of this idea of do-over, I've had uh, much bigger problems in my life. For example, when I was 17... I went on this rafting trip with our youth group, and there was this river guide that was leading our boat down the Klamath for three days. And we began to talk and discuss, and I enjoyed getting to know him a little bit. And we were sitting around this fire pit one evening uh, in between stays, you know, getting on the river and heading down to the next section. And he looks at me, and he said, Brett, how are you doing with the Lord? 
Now, I was 17 and didn't really honestly know how to answer this guy, but had some spiritual terms. And I said, you know, I'm feeling a little dry in my walk. I'm not quite sure anymore what that even means. But that's what I said to this guy. And he goes, oh, tell me about it. It's like, oh, man. I said, just last Wednesday night... I was helping in the fourth through sixth grade class. I was at this really big church. There was like 400 kids there. And I was sitting with this group of kids. And this guy, he talked for about an hour and 20 minutes. And it was horrible. And he looked at me and he goes, that was me. <laughs> right? I just shrunk. And I wanted to get out of there. But I couldn't go anywhere because I was stuck on a river for two more days with this guy. Okay? I felt so small. Now, in life, I've sat down over the last 18 years with many people. And they've shared their regrets. And they've shared their failures. And they've shared the areas in their life where they say, if I could just get this moment back. If I could just sense this renewal, if I could change something that happened in the past, it would reset my trajectory on what life could actually look like. People, even now, crave a do-over, a reset. They want renewal. They want a new way to be. And they ask this question in desperation, what can I do? This one is for free if you're single in here. According to new research, 40% of people regret sharing their password with their partner in their last relationship. The new survey comes from ExpressVPN, a virtual private network service, and sampled 1,500 adults in non-married couples. Despite the fact that almost half of the people surveyed regret during this result, the results showed that 80% of all couples shared their password to their accounts. On top of that, most don't wait very long to do it. 58% admitted that they share their passwords within the first six months of the relationship. Fast Company reports. I mean, if you have regret sharing your password with your new boo, right? Your new, your new boyfriend, your new girlfriend. How much regret are Americans living in today? How much regret and remorse and wishing and wanting for change to happen in their lives are they living in currently in this moment? And what we have is a society who is on an endless search for renewal. We have a society that is on an endless search in order to get back to what Christianity would call the garden once again. This place in which God and man dwell in harmony. This place in which, no, we don't take in disobedience of the fruit, choosing our way over God's way, but a place in which we exist, dwell, and walk in his ways, and shalom exists, but we do not know how to get there. And society after society has tried to create ways in which people could walk in to experience a utopian society that all gets along and has been met with failure after failure after failure. And we all experience that this morning on an individual level. And we experience that on a corporate level. We want renewal. How do we get there? Can I just move towns? 
Anybody ever moved towns to escape a bad city? You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe you left this or leaving this town for that reason. I don't know. All right? Maybe it'll be better in the next place. The next job, the next marriage, the next relationship, the next kid, whatever it might be. And people get this discouragement because thing after thing has failed to satisfy and fulfill them. And so we have this question, is it possible to even experience some sort of do-over? Is it possible to have renewal entering into our lives? Is there a way forward that we can look at? And today what we're going to do is we're going to lay some groundwork for this. We're going to look at, and we're not going to get the complete solution until really we come to the end of Matthew, but I think we're going to get an adequate response through what Jesus is instituting through covenant and the Passover. Now, what's happening is Jesus is about ready to celebrate the last Passover he's going to have with his disciples. And if you're not familiar with it, Passover is a pretty big deal. It comes from the Exodus story in Scripture, and it's the celebration of redemption and deliverance. And we have to go back to Exodus to understand this story. And in Exodus, what you have is a grouping of people begin to multiply in a land in which Pharaoh begins to enslave the Israelites. And he's looking at how big and massive they're growing, and he's looking at the workforce they're providing, and he does all sorts of horrible things to these people, killing their firstborn killing, excuse me, the the males that are born in order to not let them raise up armies to maybe get out of slavery. He's abusing and using, misusing them in many different ways. And the people of Israel begin to cry out to God, knowing their trajectory, knowing that God has something far different for them. And as they're crying out to God, he raises up this deliverer whose name is Moses. And if you're familiar with the Exodus story or you've watched the movie, you've read the passage, you've heard me teach on it, you know that God sends uh, these plagues and it culminates in this final moment that we know of as Passover. And what God says to Moses, to the Israelites, is it's going to be a very dark night in Egypt in which the firstborn of everyone in Egypt is going to be killed. But there is a way, there is a way to make a distinction. Now, I find this incredibly interesting because when you think about the Israelite story, if you grew up in the church, you tend to look at them as the good guys, right? This. We look at them as the heroes of the story somehow. But the scriptures actually paint them in a little bit different light. For example, in Joshua 24, 14, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What does that have to do with Passover? Well, you have the Israelites and they're living in the land of Egypt. And they're just as guilty Listen to me, they're just as guilty as the Egyptians. How is that? They were serving their gods. They were crying out to them possibly at times. It would have looked something like this when I picture that dark night. There when the Israelites were told to slaughter this lamb and apply the blood to the doorposts. 
This angel passes by, and any home that does not have the blood applied to it, the firstborn would be killed. And as you would see, maybe this angel even go into the neighborhoods of the Jews there, possibly peering in to the very windows and seeing what? The same idols that the Egyptians had. What made them distinct? wasn't that they were good guys or great gals. It wasn't that they were perfect in their own doing, but they had applied blood to their doorposts and the angel there would pass over. And in this story, God then delivers Israel and they begin to develop this new rhythm in which every single year they would celebrate what is known as Passover, this moment that Jesus is celebrating at this time. And every Passover was celebrated in a way of looking back and seeing the faithfulness of God to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And this meal would have been observed year after year after year. And what would happen at it? Well, as they get ready to eat and pass the cup and drink, they had all of these sayings. And there would be this question that would be asked as they're eating this meal repeatedly, perpetually, every year as a memorial, saying, I don't want you to forget this moment that God has done in your life. And so when we pick up this story and we pick up where Jesus is at, we have to ask, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? Because what he's going to do to Passover is he's going to radically alter, shift, and change it forever. Now, don't get me wrong. To this day, it's still celebrated in Israel for Jews in a way that looks back. But Jesus begins to alter it in a way for it to look forward. So there is this question that would be asked if you're having this Passover meal. Why is tonight different from all the other nights? This would have been a part of the ceremony that they were having as they're sitting down at the table. And this presider who would have been, a G, who would have been Jesus in this moment would then begin to explain Passover as they generally do. They would say something like this from Deuteronomy 26. Our fathers, our ancestors, they were slaves, but God looked upon their affliction and their suffering. And they'd say, do you see this bread? This bread is the bread of their affliction, the bread of our ancestors' affliction as they ate in the wilderness. And then he'd begin to explain the liberation that took place from the suffering. But what Jesus does is he picks up this bread and he doesn't say, this is the bread of your affliction. affliction. He says, this is my affliction. This is not about the past. This is about me here, now, in the present, and what this looks like going forward. And the disciples would have looked at him and went, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're messing with a very sacred day. Look, you don't go in to an Israelite's home and mess with Passover. Only God could actually do that and touch that in that way. And then he picks up this cup and he looks at them. And he says, this, this is my blood. This is the sign of the new covenant. And Jesus is instituting and he's giving us something radically, radically new.
Now, what I find interesting about this is not only is Jesus touching on Passover, but he's instituting what we know as, as the new covenant. Now, what's a, what's a covenant? It's kind of lost language in our culture. We have contracts today. And maybe that gets a little bit at the heart of what we think of when we think of a covenant. And so let me just kind of read this description to you. This comes from the Bible Project. A covenant is a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together for a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants contain, contain defined obligations and commitments but differ from a contract in that they are relational and personal. So they go on to say, think of marriage. In love, a husband and a wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in lifelong faithfulness and devotion. Then they work as partners to reach a common goal, like building a career, raising children together. That's covenant. And in the Bible, from Day one, we see God in Genesis 1 creating the heavens and earth, and then he creates Adam, he creates humanity. And it never says explicitly that he covenants with them, but what he's doing is all implied, that he's covenanting, covenanting with them, saying, here is what I'm going to do as you respond to who I am, and you're going to flourish, and you're going to go create and make and cause what I have done to go across the entire earth. That is the bond. That is the covenant I'm going to do with you. Our first parents there, Adam, Eve, they are priests and kings on God's behalf, replicating and ruling over the world, representing God and his righteousness in that world. That sounds easy, right? But it wasn't. It wasn't. And they break covenants and they disobey God. And they think our way is better than your way. And that would leave us in a terrible position, except for God does something. He covenants. There are four other major covenants to come. The Noahic covenant. You guys can look these up later if you'd like. I should have put them on the screen. I'm sorry I did not. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And throughout all of these covenants, what God is trying to do is make a covenant people who are going to walk with him, respond to him, and be his people. But if you read the story of the scriptures, what's so sad is just like Adam, he fails. Noah, he fails. Abraham, he fails. Moses, he fails. The Israelites, they fail. David, he fails. And we read the story of God and the covenants he made with those people, and we go, who will succeed? Who's going to succeed? Who can actually be this representation? Who can actually bring us into right relationship with this God? Who can usher in this unconditional grace covenant for us? And here we have it in the scriptures. Jesus, the very image of God, the invisible. <laughs> he is the visible of the invisible, as Paul says in Colossians. 
And he is doing what no other could possibly do in order to bring us life. And when he changes the trajectory of Passover, he no longer says, I want you to look back at Passover, but I want you to look at who I am because I have transformed and I have changed this. It is the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham had been delivered, that he would accomplish through obedience and sacrificial death, Jesus becomes our life. Redeemers, that's all the background. I want to share how this gets into our lives. And it's going to be very quick, but very important. When we look at this story, there are four things that we can really take away from it here this morning. First of all, we all want to do over. How is Lazarus described in that section of scripture we just read? A leper. Were lepers loved and accepted? No. They were outcasts. They were marginalized. They were rejected. And they were put out. Then what is Jesus doing? He's hanging out at a leper's house. You want to talk about a do-over? That's a do-over. That's a guy who is now being invited into life and relationship. That's a guy who now has something that he had once lost. And it's this just small picture of the renewal, of the restoration of what God is doing in people's lives. Jesus choosing to fellowship with him. What is this gal Mary doing? Some pagans, Mary Magdalene, maybe she has the gal that had the very, very, very shady past. Or Mary of Bethany, just this random woman who had spent time around Jesus and comes and breaks this alabaster box. And what does he say? He says, what she has done for me, it's going to continue on into the future. You see, when you meet Jesus, your whole life changes in a way that you get that do-over. The things you now do, they move on into the age that is to come. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He is making that way possible. No longer do we meaningless wander as the Israelites in the wilderness. But we now have new purpose, new vision, new life, because Jesus has entered into our reality, and it moves us forward. This, this is good news for each and every one of us. This is fresh start, new life, future trajectory. What else does it do? It gives us renewal. What your heart craves, what your soul longs for. The number of people I've sat down with in the last year that have just realized, like Solomon said, vanity, vanity. I've amassed, I've gotten wealth, I've had all these experiences. Why am I empty? I say, It's Jesus. It's Jesus. What your soul is trying to fulfill through sexuality, what your soul is trying to fulfill through another person in marriage, what your soul is craving through the success of your own children, and you begin to get let down time and time again, that do-over that you so desperately crave, that thing that has drawn you to this place, is renewal in Jesus. His forgiveness, love, acceptance, a new family. These are two application points I want you to think about this morning. 
One is what Jesus has done in bringing you into his family and welcoming and accepting you. Two, being reminded that since you have that renewal and it's changed the course of your life, the things you do now, as he said about Mary, they matter, matter. And they have everlasting impact. Three, application for today. We're going to take communion in just a little bit. We're going to celebrate this very thing, not in the same fashion that Jesus would have. They would have sat down on the ground, the reclining tables, very, very un-American. <laughs> it's okay, and it's good. We're not going to do that to you today. That would have been awkward, right? And it was this longer meal that they had and sharing the cup and doing all these other things. But what we see for us this morning, application for us today, is you are participating in something that's been going on for the last 2,000 years. As we take communion, we are proclaiming the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. You are declaring your own insufficiency while you're declaring his sufficiency to save. I think one of the things that we often miss is as we take communion today, we look around this room and we're like, man, we're really different in here. Come from different parts of the country. Some of us are young. Some of us are old. Some of us have much, some of us have little. And what God is saying is none of that matters because I brought you into my family in which I am the centerpiece of that. And we are celebrating what it means to be a part of the family of God. As we're partakers of this bread, we're partaking in the divine life of Christ. And I could have went down the road of transubstantiation and consubstantiation and spiritual presence view and remembrance view. And we can have that conversation later on if you want. But the reality is what we're going to do in a few moments is what Jesus told us to do. I'm taking Passover and I'm making it all about me. And I'm telling you, this is my covenant and the beauty of his covenant is he fulfilled it. He declared it. He gave it. He established it. And in so many covenants, maybe ones that we would even make today with one another, are so easily broken, he said, I'm not breaking this. In fact, I'm going to die for you in order to establish this. His blood and the shedding of that is for the forgiveness of sins. And the final thing this morning is what that means is it's intentional inclusion for any who would respond to him. Like when Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about communion, he's got this church, and this church is at war with one another. They have difference of opinions, and they're going after other leaders, and Paul is trying to center them and bring them back. And he says communion is this reminder of radical inclusion. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, yes, Christianity is inclusive in the fact that it's all about Jesus and he's including any who would respond to him, but it is exclusive to where if you don't believe in Jesus, there's no other, there's no other way. But it's radically inclusive saying it doesn't matter your background, where you were born, where you were raised, what you were raised in, he is inviting you in. And just like that, Passover and Exodus, he has made a distinction. He has made a mark. How? Because he is the lamb. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we thank you for what Passover is.
and it's about you. It's about your inclusion of us into your plan. And we get to celebrate that as your people. And we thank you for what the new covenant is, paved in your blood, promised by you, making us your own. So God, this morning as we celebrate you, thank you for this life you've invited us into. We delight in you and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.